Americans. This is the Urbane Cowboys podcast with Josiah Neely of R Street Institute and Doug McCullough. Good day. Howdy, y'all. Welcome to the Urbane Cowboys podcast. I'm Josiah Neely. And I'm Doug McCullough. Today, we're going to be talking about the intersection of a couple of hot topics, schools and race, racial preferences in college admissions, what's going on, particularly with regard to Asian Americans. The Supreme Court has agreed to hear a case on this. Harvard allegations uh, that Harvard is discriminating against Asian American applicants. Spoiler, they are, but uh, uh, to talk with us about this, we have a return guest for this show, uh, Robert Verrugan, who is currently with the, he's a fellow at the Manhattan Institute, are you still a contributing editor, National Review? Yes, sir. Okay. And also the Institute for Family Studies. I think you have an affiliation there as well. Yep. Uh, my title is Research Fellow. Okay. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, uh, you're, doing, you're doing what you can in this Biden economy. You got three jobs. <laughs> you got three kids, you know. Uh, so what for, welcome back. Thank you. Good to be here. Yeah. Um, okay, so I think it, let's start maybe with a, a little bit. I, I know you're not a, a illegal legal exactly, but you know maybe uh, just a little bit of background about what is this what is this Harvard case and what are the allegations there? Sure. Well, basically, it's been a while since the Supreme Court has weighed in on affirmative action. So periodically, you got you got to bring a case to the Supreme Court. That's been the rule since the seventies. Um, every once in a while, just got to got to bring an affirmative action case. Um, so so currently, there are actually two different cases. One one is the lawsuit against Harvard, um, and Harvard is a, a private school. Um, so they're they're arguing that it's it's violated federal law um, that basically says you're not allowed to discriminate if you're getting if you're getting federal money for higher education. Um, and the allegation in the Harvard suit is interesting because um, it's not merely that they they use affirmative action that they're discriminating by race to to give uh, to give sort of a bonus to underrepresented groups. The the allegation in the Harvard case is that um, they are actually discriminating against Asians relative to whites. So in addition to the preferences that Harvard admits giving to to blacks and Hispanics, the allegation is that if two people apply to the school, one is white, one is Asian, um, they, they will actually give lower chance of getting into the to the Asian student. And then there's also a case against a public school, uh, UNC, um, which is more of a, a traditional affirmative action case. The the, the question is just why. Whether, what, whether their affirmative action policy is legal. Um, and uh, it's uh, an interesting uh, recent study actually was by uh, Duke's uh, Peter Arcidiacono, um, who actually combined some data on both schools. Um, and, and regarding Asians, he, he finds that Harvard uh, is giving uh, preferences to whites over Asians, um, but he finds no evidence of that at UNC. So that's an interesting difference between the two cases. Yeah. So this is, this is kind of interesting. And you know, obviously it calls for speculation, but there's a part of me that is a little, I don't know exactly what the word is, amused, perhaps darkly amused, um, you know, cynically amused. Uh, you know, <laughs> there's, there's no, so there's no, there's no doubt, of course, that um, uh, Harvard is discriminating on the basis of race in its applications. The only question is, well, are they discriminating, you know, against Asians? Uh, with regard to to, to white people, <laughs> um, so I, you know what um, 
why would Harvard want to do that, right? I guess this is the question. Like, it's uh, it's obvious in scare quotes why they would want to discriminate against white applicants uh, in favor of uh, black or Hispanic applicants. It's even it's even kind of pretty clear, like why they would want to discriminate against Asian immigrants, uh, Asian applicants. <clears throat> Uh, in favor of black or Hispanic applicants, but why would they want to? Why would they, if they had an equal, uh, equally qualified uh, white applicant and, and Asian applicant, why would they want to admit the white person over the Asian person? Well, um, kind of the root of what's going on here is that there are uh, racial gaps in academic performance. Um, so you have um, test score gaps, especially um, Asians tend to perform better than whites on on test scores. They also, yeah, I, I go through in, in my new report, um, you know, some other measures as well. They, they, for example, get higher GPAs and they even spend more time doing homework. Um, but the problem is that when you have a, a gap like that, that is even not not very big on the average student. Like if you randomly select a white student and randomly select an Asian student, it's how that you're guaranteed that the Asian student is going to be way more academically prepared than the white student. Um, but when, when you have a, a differences, difference at the averages like that, that difference becomes a lot more pronounced at the extremes. Um, and a, a a school like Harvard or a school like Yale, um, those are schools at the extremes. They are picking out the very most extreme um, uh, sort of tales of the distribution of academic ability. Um, so one thing that the Harvard lawsuit revealed is that if Harvard just admitted people from the top, it calculates an academic index that includes test scores and GPAs. If, if it just uh, admitted students from the top um, decile, the top 10th of the academic in, uh, index, um, its, its student body would actually be majority Asian. So basically, um, the, the Asian um, strong performance on academic measures is so pronounced when you get to the extremes where Harvard is um, that uh, you start to have this really, really dramatic racial skew. And if a, a school wants to have um, racial balance, it wants to have a, a student body that reflects the racial composition of the country as a whole, um, a, a a, a group that's you know, 6% of the general population, but more than 50% of the best applicants to your school, that, that pretty obviously poses a problem. Okay, so now let's get to your, uh, your study, which is looking at not Harvard uh, specifically, but kind of taking a broader big picture view of what's changed in terms of uh, admissions for Asians. Oh, oh, oh. Well, why don't you explain it? Why, why don't you explain your study? Sure. Well, I mean, if you look at the, the two, two lawsuits, basically, if you want to prove discrimination in a specific school, you have to sue the school and you have to get all these detailed admissions records that you can then analyze. Um, I'm not a lawyer. I haven't been uh, you know, contacted by anybody filing any of these lawsuits, so I'm limited to the data that's publicly available. Um, so if, if you go back about 10 years, you, you'd often see this chart circulating on Twitter. Um, it was featured in an, in, in an Economist article. But basically, what a lot of people who were getting skeptical of elite colleges with regard to Asian Americans, were pointing out that as the Asian population grew, the Asian percentage of the student bodies um, at, at, at Ivy League schools had sort of stagnated and had actually converged into this sort of really narrow range where they're they had student bodies that were about 15% Asian, give or take, um, and that didn't change year over year. So what I decided to do was to, to go back to that data and extend it, first of all, forward in time, because now we have about 10 more years worth of data that we can we can look at. 
and also to, to crunch it up um, so that we can look at broader categories of schools. So for example, I look at the Ivy League as a whole. I look at schools that reject a very large percentage of their applicants. And that way I'm able to see trends in Asian enrollment at different types of schools classified in a few different ways so we can see what's going on there. Okay. And what did, what did you find? Well, the, the essence of the findings is that, for, first of all, um, the, the, the critics were right um, 10 years ago. Um, there was a, a pretty dramatic stagnation in Asian enrollment starting in the mid-1990s um, that continued through about 2010. Um, the other the sort of flip side of that that I find pretty interesting is that if you look at the years since, you know, the new years that I've added to the data, um, you actually see that Asian enrollment at these places has started to tick up again. Um, you can only speculate why that is, but I think a, you know, at least a plausible explanation is that um, everybody started paying attention to these numbers. Um, there was a lot of criticism of how elite schools were treating Asian American applicants, um, and it, it's possible that they decided to make their numbers look a little different um, when, in response to this criticism and in response to the, uh, the legal activity, the lawsuits, and then the DOJ investigation of, of Yale under the Trump administration. So one thing um, that I would note is, you know, while most schools in most parts of the country do use affirmative action, some sort of racial preference system for admissions, there are some places where that's not allowed, right? So actually where we are in Texas, um, because of a, a court decision from the, from the uh, 1990s, actually, uh, there is no affirmative action, at least, at least in the, uh, the state schools, I think it might be the case for private schools as well. Um, and then of course in California, they had a ballot measure, uh, banned affirmative action. So if you, in those schools, you know, there are some elite schools there, there's Stanford, there's, uh, UC Berkeley, there's university of Texas at Austin. Do, do we know, like, do you see a similar, um, you know, is the trend there? Is the trend there in terms of Asian uh, uh, admissions this this different, substantially different from these other schools that are still practicing affirmative action, or is it kind of the same? Do do we know that? Um, I have two, two different points to make in response to that. One is that um, a lot of people have pointed out uh, Caltech, especially because it's an extremely selective school and it's in, in a state that banned affirmative action. They'll often use that as sort of a control group, um, uh, basically, basically a way of showing what happens without affirmative action. At Caltech, the Asian, pop, uh, Asian share of the, the student body has really grown a lot over the past 20 years, and it's grown kind of in line with the, the growth of the general population. Um, but that, that said... Um, you know, Caltech is, you know, first of all, it's, it's very focused on math. It's located in California, which has a high Asian population. So there's like, there's limits to seeing it as this sort of all-purpose control group. Um, but the other thing I would point out is that you can ban affirmative action, but it's really hard to enforce it. Uh, my colleague, uh, Heather McDonald, had, had a, a City Journal article, I think, that was probably fit about 15, uh, 10 or 15 years ago now, um, pointing out that, you know, at at, uh, you know, for example, at the University of California public schools, um, they went out of their way to, to basically retool their admissions process in a way that would uh, recreate the racial balance that they were trying to to create. So I, th I think just because you banned affirmative action doesn't mean that racial considerations are out of the admissions process. You can, you can tell schools not to do it, but I, I think it's hard to actually stop them if they really want to, which most of them do. Yeah, I know in Texas, for example, we now have the so-called 10% rule, where if you're in the top 10% of your high school 
graduating class, you are automatic admit to University of Texas at Austin, uh, which does, you know, for, for various reasons about the makeup of, uh, of, of high schools, that does tend to like uh, uh, mimic perhaps the effects of affirmative action, at least in terms of like keeping things from getting too far out of the demographic skew. I, I assume, though, that even though colleges, maybe you try and find workarounds, other things, they, they might not be able to do it perfectly, or at least uh, not as easily. And I just uh, say that based on the amount of energy and angst that they put into trying to preserve their ability to use affirmative action and admissions, right? Yeah, they'd much rather be able to do it explicitly than have to um, sort of figure out ways around it. Um, I, I, I do believe, though, that this time, you know, if, if the Supreme Court strikes down affirmative action, I, I think they're they're much better prepared this time than they were last time. Um, and I think they're also just much more willing to do uh, th- things that would have seemed extreme a few years ago. Um, you know, for example, instead of a you know top ten percent plan and class preferences, um, and you know maybe maybe some covert affirmative action where you're looking at you know students' essays and you know just kind of quietly bumping up, um, you know applicants who who made it clear that they're a member of a minority group you want more of. Um, you know, schools today are just talking about let's let's ditch. Uh, standardized tests. Um, I, I think they're, they're much more willing to do things that, that people would have found extreme before. Um, this, this movement against st- standardized testing with a lot of schools going test optional um, or even test blind, which means that they ignore uh, scores even if you submit them. I mean, to me, that gives them a whole lot more power to engineer their, their racial balance however they want because they've gotten rid of the objective metrics. Are, are you anticipating that the Supreme Court's likely to uh, strike down affirmative action? I mean, I think given the current composition of the court, um, there is no way that they're not going to at least severely, severely limit it, whether they're going to you know, completely bar colleges from considering race at all or whether they're going to come up with some new new framework that's going to be a lot more limited. I wouldn't I wouldn't place any bets on. Um, but just given the current composition of the court, given that we're coming up on the you know, the 25 year anniversary of uh, yeah, you know, the, the decision, um, the, the Greta comment that, uh, you yeah, know, that that. Um, affirmative action should be no longer necessary in 25 years. Um, I, I just feel like that they've got to do something at this point or, or there was no point in taking the case at all. Yeah. And the, I mean, I would note that the, I, I, I think, I suspect that it will probably be t- towards the end of like a more maximalist decision in terms of like what they want to do. I, I think they're probably tired of, of dealing with it, but it is the case that, you know, if you look at the Harvard thing, um, it's a little bit of a special case because it's not, as you say, it's not just like what people normally think of as affirmative action. Uh, and in fact, it does seem like they were kind of doing some of the things that you suggest schools might try to do if affirmative a- if they can't like explicitly uh, use affirmative action anymore. Uh, the the one thing that always you know <laughs> kind of stood out to me in the Harvard case is the way that they would, the the way that they justified um, rejecting so many Asian applicants with, you know, high GPAs, high test scores or whatever, is that they had a component in there, you know, based on your personality, right? Which I guess is they're supposed to do like 
uh, interviews, other things to assess your personality. And it turns out, uh, according to Harvard, Asian uh, American applicants just have really, really horrible personalities um, uh, that kind of like outweigh all their other positive qualities. Um, and not only that, but the interesting thing about it is uh, like how bad their personalities are varies a lot year by year strangely uh you know negatively correlated with how good everybody else's test scores are so if you have a if you have a year where you know your non-asian applicants uh, have unusually high test scores suddenly the the asian american applicants their personalities are not quite so bad uh so that with the result that like the overall admit percentage is about the same so that that ties in nicely with the point that I was going to or question I was going to ask is because it seems that maybe too many Asians are going into math and science when they really should be becoming uh, lawyers and lobbyists because maybe they, they're not uh, there are not enough of them lobbying to further case. But but your point about them not having great personalities like us lawyers, I mean, maybe that's the problem because we all know that lawyers have amazing personalities. Uh, perhaps Robert, do you want to comment on the personalities of lawyers? I have no opinion about the personalities of lawyers. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, I guess this is the thing is that, um, this is a, a, one of the interesting aspects of this case to me is that, and I think we, you kind of seen this in the other direction with a lot of discrimination cases is, you know, uh, Discrimination, just in general, has been banned. Right, it's been banned in employment, and uh, you know, since the since the sixties, other things like that. So it's very rare in any like that you're going to have someone say, uh, "Yeah, we didn't hire this person because of their race, or we didn't admit them to college because of their race," with the exception of this affirmative action thing. So if that go that goes away, you know. There are all sorts of like statistical uh, techniques, other sorts of things that people tr you do to try and like ferret out. Okay, you're actually you actually are uh, systematically discriminating based on race. And do you think that we could see like w you know is that a a viable strategy for trying to keep colleges honest in a post affirmative action world? Well, a couple, a couple of things about that. One is that what you're describing there is, is very labor intensive. Um, the, the data that you need to do that is not just publicly available. Um, it, it contains a lot of private information about you know the, the students who applied. So you, you basically have to sue a school to get that that kind of information. So that's that, that I think is a big obstacle to it. Um, and the other thing is that I think schools can anticipate that. You know, so for example, if a school just gets rid of its standardized testing requirement and then implements its new system fairly, e even if they made that decision specifically because they thought they would get a racial, better racial balance doing that, there's a statistical technique you're going to be able to use to prove that because they just, they, they changed the the inputs to the equation that they're using to, to select applicants. And if they implement that fairly with regard to race, um, th then that's not going to be detectable. I think that, that was actually illustrated somewhat in the, the personality rating debate. Like if you see the personality rating as legitimate and include that in the equation, um, the discriminated discrimination against Asian Americans appears to be a lot, a lot less or even non-existent. But if you see the, the, um, you know, the, the raters rating, Asians' personalities lower than whites, um, as 
discrimination in itself and you remove that from your equation as a legitimate explanation, um, then it looks like there's discrimination again. So I, I think um, schools are aware of how people are going to look at this data, um, especially in light of the Harvard suit. And if they can come up with systems that they can implement fairly and without regard to race, um, and yet they came up with that system for racial reasons, I think they're going to be able to engineer the student body without, without getting caught doing it. But, uh, but we'll see how blatant they are. One, uh, so one thing that some schools have already been doing, I don't think it's necessarily an anticipation of the Supreme Court decision, uh, uh, although perhaps that would increase, I don't know. But you, you mentioned that a lot of them are, are getting rid of standardized tests in the application process, going test blind or test neutral. Um, but not all of them. I know MIT recently announced that, no, they were not going to do that. Um, what, so, uh, you know, what's your, what's your assessment there of like the pros and cons and like what's some of the problems of, of trying to, you know, fly, fly blind, <laughs> as it were, uh, on this issue? Yeah, I actually did a little piece for the uh, the New York Sun on on the MIT decision, and the the blog post that there um, it was an admissions official who wrote a blog post uh, explaining their decision, and it, and it was really great in explaining why standardized tests are valuable and why MIT uses them. Um, and a lot of it just boils down to the fact that standardized tests work. Um, you know, if you uh, strain people by test scores, you're less likely to get people who are not going to be able to keep up with the work. Um, and it, but I think that the the big um, so, sort of limiting factor to that argument is that's uh, very very important. Somewhere like MIT, like if you let a kid into MIT who is not ready for MIT, um, nothing good is going to happen from that, that, that it's a very demanding school, famously demanding. Um, and you're not going, you're not helping anybody by letting in students to MIT who can't hack it there. Um, you know, but a lot of, you know, these sort of liberal arts schools, I mean, I think there are a lot of schools that basically graduate everybody, um, and, you know, can at least put people into less demanding majors if they're having issues. Uh, I think there are lots of ways, um, for, for a lot of these schools, at least to drop standardized testing, let in students, um, who, who might, uh, not be all that academically competitive and might end up toward the bottom of the class, um, but but still can graduate and still have that credential. So, I mean, I, th- I think there's different schools are going to face very different trade-offs in that regard. Yeah, I think it's, you know, um, you do start to get to a question of, okay, well, what is, what is the point of admitting, of selectively admitting uh, students to some of these schools at all? If the argument, you know, because the argument in favor of the standardized tests is, that it is predictive of how well you're going to do at the school, what your grades are going to be, likelihood to graduate, um, uh, which it's not. I, I, th- I think uh, maybe that's more true at highly selective elite schools. Um, maybe not. I'm not sure. But you know, if you if you uh, if you don't want to do that, if your argument, you know, if the if the counter argument is well. I mean, people can probably graduate anyway, right? That's what really matters is just getting the credential. I mean, why not? Like, I, I, I used to think of this as like kind of a, you know, reductio ad absurdum. But lately I start to wonder, like, you know, why not just have just uh, random emissions or, you know, do a, do a lottery for all the schools if it doesn't matter? Um, that would probably be the, you know, in one sense, the fairest way you 
you're very likely to not get these huge racial disparities if you do it that way. So what what are your thoughts on what are your thoughts on the Neely plan for uh, admissions by uh, by lottery? I mean, I think that that is the conundrum that these elite schools are facing. They they are elite schools. They um, you know, obviously treasure their reputation as elite schools. They want to maintain a reputation as as elite schools. Um, but the thing is, to be elite, you have to be selective. And if you're going to be selective um, academically, you're going to have racial disparities. So how do you um, you how do you, how do you maintain selectivity without without doing that? That's that's the question. I think what what they would say they're going to do is okay. We're going to going to drop the standardized tests. We're not going to you know be quite as worried about GPAs or whatever. But we're going to find kids who are exceptional in some other way. Um, and it, but I think that that sort of sets off a feedback loop where I think the rest of society has to decide. You know, do we really see these these schools as still you know really elite, really selective if they're um, you know if they're letting in people. Um, who, who aren't that academically qualified and are just letting people in based on their, their essays or what have you. Um, it's, I, I think we're going to see a lot of, um, a, a lot of hand wringing and a lot of, uh, a, a lot of reactions going forward um, as schools dramatically change the types of people they're letting in. Um, and we have to decide whether we still see those schools as elite or not. Um, because if you're not being selective anymore, then maybe you're not elite. Should there be a, uh, a a different type of admissions pr- approach and standard between private schools and public schools? I mean, I would think that there'd be a, a higher scrutiny in the public, you know, state state colleges for strictly not. Uh, although it's not the case now, but you would you would expect there to be uh, stricter rules about non discrimination. But should there should private universities have greater leeway uh, of setting their admissions policies? I mean, as a legal matter, there's federal civil rights law that basically says you're not allowed to discriminate by race if you're an educational institution receiving federal funds, which is which is basically all of them. So, I mean, I think you could make a case that um, you, that you obviously the, the distinction between public and private is incredibly important. Private private actors should basically be able to do what they want um, as long as they aren't aren't, aren't violating laws while while private. You know, well, the government represents all of us. It, it needs to be much more even-handed. Um, but the thing is, we've gotten so much money um, into private schools at this point, um, and, and we also have long-standing laws in the book that says they're not supposed to be discriminating. That I, I think the lawsuit against Harvard is is fair. I, I think they are in violation of the letter of the law, um, and these uh, years and years of precedent saying that they don't have to follow the the law that 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 affirmative action is legal. I, I think we're incorrectly decided. Um, so there's the legal argument. The moral argument, should they still be able to gobble up all sorts of federal aid and also be discriminating by race? Um, I'm not thrilled about that. I don't think so. But um, but I think there's definitely an argument to be made there. Do you have any opinions on what, in some ways this is a strange question to ask, but do you have any opinions on what a non-discriminating admissions policy ought to look like? I mean, in my opinion, uh, college is about academics, and it should be uh, you know strongly weighted toward academic factors. I think test scores are are you know for all for all the hate that test scores get, they're a great measure of um, people's academic qualifications. Um, they do a good job of predicting who does well in college. I think college, test scores should have a lot of weight. Um, high, high school GPA um, is it's trickier because different people go to different high schools and have different teachers and take different classes, so it can mean different things for different people. But it's also predictive. I mean, it shows how how studious you are. You um, know, I'm also I also don't have any objection to seeing college as a you know sort of a way of um, facilitating social mobility and, and giving a second look to kids who come from poorer backgrounds. Um, 
you know, things like that. I, I'm not completely opposed to that. Um, but but in, in the main, I think college admissions is about academics and it should be based on academic academic factors. So you also wrote uh, another recent piece about drawing new lines and you make a reference to ghost guns. And I'm not quite sure what a ghost gun is, but I think I want one. Can you tell us uh, what a ghost gun is? <laughs> um, sure. Yeah, basically there's a... Uh... It's, it's long been legal in the U.S. to make your own firearm. Uh, and if you do that, you don't need to put a serial number on it. <clears throat> um, but in, in recent years, basically companies um, you know, on the Internet, for example, have made it easier for people to make their own firearms by basically providing them all the parts in a, a very convenient way that they don't have to do much work on them yet. Um, so, so, so a ghost gun is a, a gun that's homemade and doesn't have a serial number on it. Um, and these have been playing an increasing role in crime and the Biden administration recently tightened up the rules so that companies can no longer provide, um, you know, s- products that are so close to being a, a complete gun. How, <laughs> seems like this is going to be an ex- exceptionally difficult thing to police over time, particularly as and this, we've done an episode on this as although it's been two or three years on, um, 3D printed guns and so forth. It doesn't this seem like this is something that is going to, I mean, I don't doubt that the federal government is going to try to regulate this, but doesn't this seem like this is something that's going to be exceedingly difficult as, as technologies like 3D printing advance, uh, it's going to make it very difficult to police, uh, you know, regulating ghost guns. Yeah, in a way it's kind of similar to the, uh, the affirmative action debate. You know, if you ban affirmative action, um, Colleges will, at minimum, stop explicitly giving preferences and admitting that they give preferences. Um, if you ban ghost guns, you can definitely crack down on the, the folks who are just openly selling <clears throat> these ghost gun kits. Um, if you, you know, Google it on the internet, you can find the ghost gun kits that you can order. You, that, that's easy enough to shut down. But yeah, there's going to be a lot of developments in the future, and there are already developments now that make it easier for people to make their own guns at home, and it's going to be extremely difficult to to police that um, just by by passing a law saying you can't do that anymore. So, what's your what's your favorite uh, college movie? Jeez, um, why don't you guys go first? I I, I need to think about this. I, I don't. Um, it's been a while since I saw a college movie. I'm, I'm way past that point myself. Yeah, yeah. Well. Um... Uh, of course, there is the classic, uh, uh, slightly relevant Jeremy uh, Piven movie from the 90s, uh, PCU. Uh, I had a friend who told me, actually, that movie's not very good. Uh, people just like remember it, you know, because it's like anti-PC or whatever. But um, that seemed to be uh, kind of fun. But it seemed like it, it, my uh, impression is, you know, in the... 80s and 90s was kind of the heyday of like uh, college movies. It doesn't seem like they make that many of them anymore, but or perhaps that's just that I'm old and out of touch now, and so I don't know what, what's going on. Doug, you're hip and with it. What do you think? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I was just going to say uh, the, the one that I can't get out of my head is so hip and with it because I keep thinking about breaking away that that's the answer that I should actually give. Although I'm not sure that I've actually watched the entire movie. It's it's about the little 500. Uh, and growing up, we used to make references to it, even though uh, uh, I don't think I've ever actually watched the whole movie. It is probably I mean, the cinematography is dreadful because it's so old fashioned. I don't know if it's like the late 70s or something like that. Uh, but since it was set in Indiana at Indiana University, uh, I've known references to the movie for my basically you know, ever since I was probably in junior high. But that's the only college movie I can think of off the top of my head. 
I, I like to P PCU. It's, it's an interesting um, sort of document of the time. Um, though, though I agree with the critics that say it's not. Uh, it's not an extremely funny movie that would have survived either way. I think it. I think it survived because of the what it was saying about colleges. Um, back in the day, I liked old school quite a bit, but I have not seen that probably since it around the time it came out. I think it's close to 20 years old now. So I don't know, maybe I'll get canceled for, for something they say in that movie or something. But I, I remember liking old school quite a bit back when it came out. Yeah. Speaking of, uh, cancelable movies, you know, there is, there is a movie, uh, from the eighties, uh, soul man, I think it is, which features, uh, the main character, um, uh, getting admitted to an Ivy League school. It might be Harvard. It might be Yale. I'm not sure. One of those schools uh, by pretending to be uh, African-American. It's uh, notorious because like the main character is in blackface or whatever. Although I haven't seen it. My understanding is that it's actually a pro affirmative action movie because when he gets there, he realized everybody who thinks that he's black discriminates against him. And he realizes that like, actually, you know, it's important to, uh, uh, validate the lived experience of racism of, of people of color something like that. But, um, that's the only, you know, uh, in terms of like, uh, affirmative action comedies, that's probably the only one that I can think of that is out there. So on that light, funny note, uh, Doug likes to end on light notes. Uh, Thank you uh, very much, Robert, for joining us, and we hope to have you back uh, again in a couple more years. Great. Thanks so much for having me.